Broken bones, filthy conditions, bed sores. Oregon's most vulnerable citizens, the elderly, are often victims of institutional abuse and neglect at the hands of the very people tasked with caring for them. I mean, after, after months of reading these reports, you kind of come away just really with like a little bit of despair, uh, you know, seeing how people are just treated not like people at all. On this week's episode, Kelly Knoyer talks to data reporter Fedor Zarkin of The Oregonian about his investigation into memory care facilities. Fedor analyzed more than 100,000 abuse and neglect records, and he found that the worst facilities were those that took care of the most vulnerable sector of the elderly population, those with dementia and Alzheimer's living in memory care communities. I'm Abby Ivriganya, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. was messing around with the database he had already gotten when he first discovered the disparity between memory care facilities and other retirement communities. He'd pulled a database of state records on elder abuse for a previous story about Oregon's failure to provide information on dangerous facilities to the public. With state data in hand, he decided to see what trends he could find. Well, so when I first was playing with that data, I really was just looking for what there was of interest. That's how you know, I look for stories when I don't have like a tip to go off. I think I just ranked the facilities by total number of abuse com- and neglect cases, and memory care just kept coming up at the top. To make sure the trend he spotted wasn't a fluke, Fedor compared each facility's abuse rates to its occupancy, which allowed him to calculate per capita abuse and neglect rates. He found that memory care facilities had twice the rate of abuse and neglect compared to regular facilities. To bulletproof his analysis, he enlisted two statisticians. They did tests to confirm that Fedor's data analysis was statistically significant. Enlisting those experts was a matter of appealing to their nerdy dispositions. I mean, these are folks who are just naturally interested in this stuff, and it just so happens to be that this exact kind of research hasn't just hasn't been done. I mean, folks haven't taken any state with data on memory care abuse and regular assisted living abuse and compared them. Fedor found that memory care facilities were charging much more money than other retirement homes, but they had significantly higher rates of abuse and neglect. He also found studies showing that the abuse could often be attributed to low staffing. There just weren't enough caregivers for all the residents. With the data pointing him to the facilities with the most problems, Fedor needed to find out what that abuse entailed. That involved weeks of digging through state inspection reports with his reporting partner, Lynn Terry. So. Early on in the project, we wanted to get a really deep sense of what these abuse cases really were. We spent weeks reading state uh, inspection reports and making notes on the cases that really stuck out. The state sent them the reports as PDFs, meaning they had to look through them one at a time. Keeping organized with so many files was a challenge, so Fedor and Lynn kept meticulous digital notes. Yeah, so Lynn, Terry, and I, we had a 
shared Google spreadsheet where we had a record for every inspection report that we read and where we made notes on the things that stuck out and you know, categorized the kind of cases that, that there were. That was vital, of course. Otherwise, we would have gotten lost in the misery and the despair of the contents of the reports. What they read was shocking. One woman living at a memory care facility got in an argument with another resident. The squabble ended with a fall and a fractured skull. The woman later died in the hospital. That tragic incident came just days after the woman fell during another violent interaction. The same resident hit the victim with a slipper, causing her to fall. Investigators labeled the death abuse because the facility failed to provide a safe environment. The reporters spent week after week reading cases of violence and suffering like this. Uh, you know, I, I kept it together, but it was not, uh, how do I put it? You, you know, it makes you, it makes you kind of angry, I think, at the end of the day. It's kind of angry. While the investigation reports from the state were compelling, they were also anonymous. Fedor and Lynn would have to find another way to identify human sources. So, they turned to the Attorney General for complaints and lawsuits. I mean, court records are really good for that because names are public. Uh, that's where we got a lot of our human beings for the story. Um, also, attorney general complaints, so like complaints to the Justice Department, consumer complaints, those were very useful. So those weren't in every case substantiated, those didn't necessarily go to court, but there are still people with some harrowing stories. One of those stories came from Anna Mae Hill, a 96-year-old woman who fell and fractured her back one night at a memory care facility on the Oregon coast. Her daughter, Cheryl Smith, spoke to the Oregonian for a video. When I got that phone call around after one o'clock in the morning, and they said that she fell down and was hollering, I don't know how long it took them to go, to go get her. A state investigation found that Anna Mae Hill was left crying for help for over five minutes on the floor. A caregiver who heard her cries decided to call for help on the radio rather than immediately assist her. When Hill complained of severe pain, staffers waited to get permission from her daughter before sending her to the hospital. The big mistake they did, they shouldn't moved her. They should have called the ambulance. And when they lift her up in bed and she was complaining, hurting, you know, they figured, oh, you know, you just got a sore bone or whatever. But laying in bed in misery, that's when they decided to call me. The state found the caregiver and facility responsible for neglect. Fedor found that Hill's family and other families were happy to talk to reporters about what they'd been through. A lot of people want to talk about these things, I think, because they appreciate somebody listening, because part of the reason they came on my radar is because they tried to raise these issues with authorities. You know, they're trying to get people to pay attention. That's why they file a complaint with the attorney general's office. That's why they file a suit because they feel like something wrong has happened and they want somebody to do something about it. But talking to victims trapped in an abusive system can be emotionally challenging. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, of course, really tough sometimes to hear those stories. I mean, because like, people are at the end of the line. You know, they don't know what to do. They're fighting multiple layers of these systems and they feel like there's been this huge injustice. And... They're tired because for years they've been working to protect their mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, 
uh, you know, and all they want for them is just like a comfortable last few years in their dying years. And then they see uh, just horrific things being done by these facilities that they've trusted entirely with care for their loved ones. And of course, they're, they're, they're distraught. And I mean, it's impossible not to be affected by that. Fedor knew from his reporting that caregivers could be a valuable source of information on what goes on inside memory care facilities. These are people who are literally there every single day. I mean, these are the people who really know what's going on there and who can also lend even more credibility to families. Because, you know, whenever you talk to any family with a mom or dad who's been abused or neglected, you know they have a very deep emotional investment in that. And so presumably that affects their description of events to some degree. With caregivers, they're a little bit more removed and they can tell you what they saw. But finding caregivers who are willing to talk on the record can be a challenge. Often, workers fear retaliation if they speak out about poor conditions. So Fedor put together a questionnaire and sent it out to caregivers on Facebook. Initially, I was just looking for people in Oregon who had listed caregiving as a, as a job uh, or who had listed specific memory care facilities as a current or former employer. And I was messaging people like, hi, my name is Fedor. I'm a reporter with The Oregonian. Here's a link to this questionnaire. Please help that, blah, blah, blah. And very quickly, Facebook stopped letting me send messages to people who weren't in my friend list. I was, I mean, it flagged me as spam, and I guess technically I was kind of spam. So the social media team at The Oregonian came up with a new plan, targeted Facebook ads. They aimed their new ad campaign at Facebook users who listed caregiver as their job title. It worked better than they ever expected. And that worked great. I mean, we wanted 25 responses. We got like 220. So, And it's also really cheap because there are some methods where you only pay for each person who actually clicks and opens the link in the ad. So it was, I think, $50 or so for these 220 responses. His survey proved to be extremely useful in this story, but the tactic doesn't work in every situation. I will say, I mean, it, it doesn't matter how you formulate things. I mean, I've been working on a, you know, some mental illness stories, and a questionnaire I put together on that has gotten exactly zero responses. So, you know, it's not a guaranteed success. It may not work for every story, but Fedora's memory care questionnaire helped validate the conclusions of his reporting, that staffing ratios were a likely cause of abuse and neglect in memory care facilities. 70% of the survey respondents had witnessed abuse or neglect, and 8 in 10 blamed the abuse on shortage of staff. Some of the participants included their names and contact information, which allowed Fedor to find even more sources for his investigation. One caregiver became the heart of the second part of his story. For part two, we focused on caregivers, and the primary example for that story was Sidney Vosgine. Vosgine was paid ten fifty an hour, barely higher than minimum wage at the time. She worked her shifts alone in one of the memory care buildings, looking after 11 people at once. She was too small to lift one of her patients, a 250-pound man, by herself. One time, the man soiled himself, and she waited for an hour for another caregiver to answer her call for help. She told Fedor the patient was left sitting in his own filth. 
Other times, turnover meant Vojin couldn't rely on her fellow caregivers to know the basics of the job. You know, in a lot of stories on senior care, the focus, like the victims, it's people living in these facilities or their family members. But I think that caregivers who are overworked and who have to see this suffering day in and day out, they're also victims in their own right. And you know, having her story as the central example is also something that was you know, fresh in a way for all the reporting and writing uh, that has been written about senior care facilities. Fedor wanted to investigate the cause of the chronic understaffing that often contributed to abuse and neglect. Most of the caregivers who answered the questionnaire cited low staffing as a reason for abuse at their facilities. A state agency came to similar conclusions. Oregon law only requires a specific staffing ratio at nursing homes. When it comes to other care facilities, state law specifies only that the facility must, quote, meet the scheduled and unscheduled needs of residents. This vague phrasing leaves a lot up to interpretation. Fedor found that many advocates think more precise staffing ratios would help protect residents. Oregon's nursing homes, by comparison, have very strict staffing requirements, like one nursing assistant per seven residents during the day shift. Fedor decided to find out why nursing homes were treated so differently from other care facilities. So one of my favorite parts, honestly, of this story was digging through the regulatory uh, history of nursing homes in Multnomah County Law Library, where I saw from the early 80s the exact same things being said about nursing homes as are now being said about memory care. Uh, The same kinds of abuse and neglect attributed, again, 35 years ago, to low staffing and no standards for staffing. So those laws all went through a slow process where, so first there were no standards, and eventually there was also a formula that determined exactly how many people should be working in a nursing home. That was scrapped because people found that it was ineffective. And eventually there were concrete staffing ratios put in place in nursing homes. In 2017, the Oregon legislature passed a law that allows state regulators to use software to calculate how many caregivers are needed in each facility. But the law didn't mandate the use of the software or require facilities to follow its guidelines. A state advocate told Fedor that Oregon's law is too vague, allowing facilities to fall short on staffing and get away with it. Fedor thinks that the memory care facilities may one day follow the path of nursing homes and require specific staffing ratios for residents. So my my prediction is that eventually something along these lines could happen with memory care. I don't know for sure, but there are a lot of parallels between the history of nursing home regs and memory care and a lot of this a lot of parallels in the problems and conditions that have been reported. other reporters investigating elder abuse, Fedor says it's important to bring something new to a topic that's covered often. And I think data analysis 
is a key component to that uh, because, I mean, frankly, just stories just about old folks suffering, we've seen those before. So if you try to get a bigger picture analysis in there, that will probably make it more interesting for you and more interesting for readers and also provide something new for policymakers. Fedor's team did something especially innovative during their first project on elder abuse back in 2017. During that investigation, he found that the state was hiding thousands of records of abuse and neglect from the public. The state provided a tool for looking at previous abuse and neglect cases, but 60% of substantiated complaints weren't on the government website. So in talking to the editors here, you know, we felt like, hey, you know, this is pretty important because people actually use that online resource to help them figure out where they would like their mom or dad to live. But we also thought, hey, this is the kind of story where in addition to presenting a problem, we could potentially just fix it at the same time. They decided to build a tool that would help Oregonians make informed decisions about elder care facilities. The paper's data team took information from the state data set and laid it out on a map with each facility represented by a colored dot. Readers can filter the map by facility type and see how many abuse complaints have been filed with each facility in their community. The tool first launched in 2017, but the Oregonian keeps it updated with the most recent complaints, and they publicize it with each new article on elder abuse. You know, I felt really good about the response to that story and to that database. Um, I mean, honestly, for a week or two, I just kept getting emails and calls from people just saying thank you. Like, you know, this is a great resource, you know, I've been looking for a place for my mom, and this is really going to help. It's just saying how much they appreciated it. When working with a lot of data, Fedor recommends using a central spreadsheet with clear pathways to every file. Standardized naming conventions can also help track different versions of data sets as new information comes in from state agencies responding to records requests. A very standardized and structured approach to keeping data. I don't know, maybe everybody already does that and I'm the only one who came late to it, but oh my God, it's a lifesaver. Like, you know, where you have a spreadsheet with the path to every file and you know, things standardized, uh, that'll save lots of headaches. That's, that's really something that saved my life lots of times. Fedor and his colleagues intend to keep their map tool updated with the latest information on abuse complaints, but he's not done reporting on elder care facilities and their problems. He recently discovered an untouched treasure trove of potential information, court documents on court-appointed guardians. If somebody uh, applies for, to be a guardian for somebody, those records are all uh, online in the court system. So a lot of these folks who have dementia, they have guardians. So either they're kids or an official guardian or someone whose job it is to be a guardian. Court records of that kind often include a description of the person's history and why they live in a nursing home or memory care facility in the first place. So that would have been a great source, but I hadn't tapped it at the time, and you know, hopefully others will, uh, will do better. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to the Orgonians' reporting, including the tool they created to track abuse rates in elder care facilities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. 
and you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Kelly Knoyer reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Abby Avrigania. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.